Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 93. Little shop, little shop of remakes, little shop. Little shop of remakes, little shop, little shop of remakes. Who? All right, Alex has got the Broadway bug. Um, yeah, thank you for that, Alex. We no, appreciate it. Of, of all, I mean the the <laughs> the sheer effect a musical edition had to this story was really impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. There's a lot of changes, but I think that the the charm and the fun. Um, definitely stayed uh but there there is okay so yeah what are we talking about we're talking about the little shop of horrors first of all we want to thank our patrons because this is a poll that we ran on our uh, patreon it was a quick turnaround poll too so thank you to those who voted and if you would like to vote on future polls you can subscribe on patreon more about that at the end of the episode though um, so yeah, so they voted on different remakes uh, that have been done throughout the years in a variety of genres and um, also films that both the original and the remake are well regarded and they chose Little Shop of Horrors and so we're going to be talking about that. Uh, it is a fascinating dark comedy sci-fi something oh, something super dark. what is what is this story? It's like everything it is it is like the epitome of B movie cinema from like the 50s yeah. and 60s done by the king of B movie cinema self-aware uh, B movie too which Roger is awesome Corbin. yeah yeah so it's 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 fascinating and we'll talk a lot about like you know Roger Corman's process and like how the original movie came to be made which was a very interesting story um and obviously you know this did this story did not begin its life as a movie. It started off as something else, moved to off Broadway, I think, and then became a movie, right? Or do I have uh, that backwards? N- yeah. So the the story was actually written for Roger Corman. Um, it was written by Charles B. Griffith, who I think was a frequent collaborator with Roger Corman. Um, it was written in about ten days because Roger Corman had a leftover set from Bucket of Blood, and he was like, "We gotta, we gotta just make something with this before they tear it down." Um, so they wrote this story really quickly, and from what I found on Wikipedia, uh, the story might have been inspired by an Arthur C. Clarke short story called The Reluctant Orchid. Um, Arthur C. Clarke is probably most well known for Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep, which got turned into Blade Runner. Um, and But that Arthur C. Clarke short story was also inspired by an H.G. Wells short story called The Flowering of the Strange Orchid. Um, and H.G. Wells makes a lot of sense because the story has a lot of like twilight zoniness to it. At least the Roger Corman version does, which I really liked. Um, so yeah, so we're talking about the, the two versions. The first one directed by Roger Corman, uh, came out in 1960 is actually called the little shop of horrors. And then the 1986 version that we'll be talking about is called little shop of horrors. Cause I think when it went to Broadway, uh, it add it, they dropped the, the, I don't know why it's just, I'm like looking up, uh, you know, all this stuff about the movie and I don't know why that V just kind of got dropped somewhere along the line. Yeah. Maybe, maybe for like slight delineation between the two versions. Um, but I mean, the title works remarkably well both ways. Either um, way, yeah. 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 And so of course, 
the two movies we're talking about today, <laughs> I'm sure you already know, but just in case, um, The Little Shop of Horrors from 1960, directed by Roger Corman, made in a, a whopping two days of production time. Um, and Plus, bo- I think, a night of pickups, but, yeah, but we'll go two also, days. Also, like, the amount to which it shows it and doesn't show it is quite <laughs> impressive. Um, Incredible. And then, of course, there's the 1986 musical version of Little Shop of Horrors directed by one Frank Oz, who is an oddly perfect fit for this story, um, considering how much puppetry is done in it. And the puppetry is right. quite impressive. Um, and this was the film adaptation of that musical. Um, yes. That w- the Oh, my gosh. So let's trace the steps here. The <laughs> film adaptation of the Broadway musical of the off-Broadway musical of the um, of the B-movie film of the adaptation of a pulp story. Um, yeah. So just for a little bit of clarification, um, after the film came out, there was an off-off-Broadway musical in 1982. What is off-off-Broadway, so, Jonathan? <laughs> this is what we're getting to. So... Off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway and Broadway are really just descriptions of how many seats the theaters hold. So off-off-Broadway means that the theater had fewer than 100 seats. Uh, Off-Broadway means between 100 and 500 seats, and Broadway is 500 or more seats per theater. So this apparently took off in a little tiny theater of less than 100 seats and then just kept moving up into like the big leagues of Broadway musicals because it was just so daggum popular for whatever reason. That's quite impressive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've always wondered that because I've been to uh, very good shows in very small theaters that were on literally on the street of Broadway in New York um, and they were called Off-Broadway and I was just very confused. Right. Um, but yeah. that, that makes a lot of sense. So that's good to know. Um, yes. And of course this, the 1986 version was nominated for best visual effects and the original song, uh, mean green mother from outer space, which is also an addition from the original version, which I don't think makes Audrey two an alien. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the changes are are very interesting, and the just addition of music and having Audrey singing uh, in little in the the musical version is just insane. So before we get into it, let's have Jason set up the uh, the broad strokes of the story for us, and then we'll break down the 1960 film and then adapt it into a musical. The Little Shop of Horrors from 1960. On Skid Row, the poorest neighborhood in Los Angeles, sits Mushnick's florist shop run by penny-pinching Mr. Mushnick, the klutzy Seymour Krellboyne, and the sweet Audrey. Seymour loses his job and, seeking to regain it, brings in an exotic plant from a Japanese gardener that he names Audrey Jr. after his crush on Audrey, a crush that he doesn't realize is mutual. The plant is very strange, responding to Seymour's cut finger by drinking his blood and growing exponentially overnight. This growth becomes a neighborhood sensation, and soon, Mushnicks is doing good business again. Seymour is becoming florist famous, and his and Audrey's relationship is taking off. There is just one problem. Audrey Jr. continues to demand, Feed me, Seymour! 
And so the bumbling, incompetent Seymour is forced to go into search for fresh human bodies to feed his meal ticket. Soon, Mushnik sees and is wrapped up in the same bloody scheme. Although he's not the murdering kind, Seymour walks a comedically horrific line between the rewards that come from Audrey Jr. and the terrifying cost of those rewards. All right, Jonathan, so here's the question. Can you make a movie that turns a profit in two days? Uh, I don't know. I have not tried, Alex. <laughs> well, you want to know who has tried and who has succeeded? That would be Roger Corman. Roger Corman, the king of B-movie cinema. Um, and not just a movie. Like, it's it's an hour and 11 minutes. It's a short movie, but it's still, like, a feature-length film. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure is a feature-length film. Um, and... It's an impressively well-made one, considering it was made in, you know, two days and a night of pickups, as Jonathan pointed out. Um, and as Roger Corman points out in um, the uh, the chapters in which he speaks with Peter Bogdanovich in Peter Bogdanovich's book, Who the Hell Made It? Um, he essentially made it on a leftover set um, from his previous B-movie, which is strikingly similar, and I've seen it as well, called The Bucket of Blood. Um in which a weird, bumbly, Seymour-type character uh, goes about finding a... accidentally killing people and then casting them in plaster to try to hide the bodies. And then everybody oh thinks the, the plaster-casted bodies are, like, brilliant works of art and he becomes super famous. Um, and that sounds hilarious. really fi- so, uh, similar to the fame um, encountered in Little Shop of Horrors. Um, that's probably because they were made back to back. Yeah, um, and on not very, a lot of time for creating original ideas. In oh there. yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was made super fast, um, and impressively so. You can tell in the way it was made, um, and it it shows in the fact that most of these scenes are done in one, maybe two wide shots. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's two camera angles shooting the same scene so they can just kind of do it one and done and then cut between yeah. them. Uh, it, basically, it feels like, um, and this is what uh, me and my wife felt when we were watching it, um, that it feels like a one-act play, basically. And I'm sure it's been turned into a one-act play like in high school theaters and stuff. And obviously it eventually got turned into a musical. Um, but it's so stripped down that it it feels like theater um almost like a reason in the sun did when we talked about that at the top of this season yeah yeah no it does definitely give that feel of like um a recorded play like early 1930s cinema does um but it, it is it is remarkably well composed um obviously like most scans of this movie that still exist aren't very high fidelity um, there actually is an HD version on YouTube that you can find right now. I'll put a link to it in the blog. Oh, really? I would love to yeah. see this in HD. <laughs> and I think there's a colorized version out there somewhere. I'll have to track that one down again. Oh, no. Who took the time to colorize this? That, I have no idea. <laughs> that that doesn't seem worth it to me at all, but okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yeah, and there's, there's very few close-ups. Um... In fact, one of the only close-ups that I remember in the film is the, is the one where um, Mr. Mushnick is coming home drunk looking for his wallet, and he walks in the back of the shop, and he looks and sees Seymour feeding yeah. a hand to, or I think it's a foot at that point, to Audrey too. Um, and the, the close-up is literally just Mushnick 
against like a black drape <laughs> because they were like, oh, we don't have this wall. So <laughs> we're just going to shoot this against a black drape. And it very much looks like a pickup that was done maybe two days later. Well, um, the scene before that, when he's eating dinner with Audrey, is literally like somebody's living room that they tried to pass off as a restaurant. And that's probably the worst uh, set in the whole movie. Yeah, but they did it through a window to try to obscure it. It actually works pretty okay. Yeah, they did it through like yeah, like stair banisters or something weird. So, but yeah, this the the corners that they cut in this movie are ridiculous. But the thing has such a tone of self awareness and hilarity that you you really just don't care at some point. Because at first I thought that this might be. Um, cause I'd never seen either of these versions before, honestly, uh, which is shocking for me as a theater kid. So going into it, I wasn't sure if this was like a B movie that was trying, one of those movies that tries to be a good movie, but misses the mark. And so that's why it's funny. But like very quickly into it, I realized, oh no, this movie is just like making fun of films and B movies and noir movies and everything. One of my favorite dialogue scenes, I think now, uh, out of almost any movie is the one where the two detect the guy, the detective walks into the office Oh yeah, and he has the conversation <laughs> with the other detective and then he's like, so how is the wife in, uh, how's the wife? Good. How are the kids? Lost one yesterday. Lost one, eh? How'd that happen? Playing with matches. Ah, uh, those are the breaks. And that's literally <laughs> like the whole conversation. And it carries um, over too. Somebody else talks about it like two yeah, scenes later. That, the little old lady whose family keeps dying apparently she's related to that kid too so which makes yeah, sense the, everybody in this movie is actually cursed there is a surprising a lot of very well executed setups and payoffs um a surprising number of them for how quickly this film was written and made uh because it's very cohesive yeah yeah and you know what it's um it's definitely one of those films that kind of proves that it's not really money that makes a, a movie good. It's much more of a um, uh, it's much more of a question of the skill of those involved. Yeah, talent. Um, and especially like I mean, we've heard of forty eight hour film film challenges before, but most of the time those people are making shorts, ten minute um, movies. Yeah, yeah. This is something entirely different. <laughs> But also, there's a little bit of an infrastructure difference here. Obviously, he's got the backlots. He's got a network of actors and um, crew and all that kind of stuff, um, which is something that we should kind of talk about because I don't know when Roger Corman will show up on the podcast again. Uh, so let's kind of talk a little bit about who he was. He was a um, director and producer um, who made a lot of very low-budget um horror movies that a lot of movies he made yeah i think in the afi conversations book they said that he has the most credits out of anyone who ever had or ever has since uh, yeah, they, been uh, to their like over 400 films he's credited on as either a director or producer yeah he's he's i mean uh, just looking off of his letterbox credits alone he has 239 producer credits which is absurd yeah and he has that's crazy 55 director credits which is also absurd the only two people who who covered on this podcast who have like that many credits and they both have i think less than corman at this point um although one of them is still making movies are spielberg and hitchcock yeah probably and and that's absurd and the not only that but the connection of roger corman to 
every nearly everybody else who was successful in the film industry from the 1960s, 1960s um, through like the millennium and onward is crazy. He mentored, uh, obviously, uh, Jack Nicholson, who was in this movie, he got his start with Roger in Roger Corman films. Peter Bogdanovich got his start in Roger Corman films. Yeah, um, because as a so Corman directed a lot of movies, but also as producer, he was maybe more influential because as producer, he would hire on uh, upcoming directors and kind of give them their start. And so that's why a lot of these directors kind of come from him because as producer, he would just bring people in and then send them off. Like he was basically the real maker. He would just give people, let them make a reel and then send them off to do bigger and better things. And he knew it. He didn't like try to keep people locked down to make in his scale of movies. Uh, he also jumpstarted the careers of Francis Ford Coppola, Ron yeah. Howard, James mm-hmm. Cameron. Um, yeah. There's more. I literally, I'm literally having to pull up list right now. Uh, <laughs> Martin Scorsese, um, Joe Dante, John Sales, Curtis Hansen, Jonathan Dim, or Demi? I don't know. Demi? Um, I think Jonathan Demi sounds right. Yeah. I don't know. It's it, You know exactly who I'm talking about, though. Right. Um, <laughs> but yes, there's a lot. There's a lot, 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 lot. Um, and essentially, it, you know, his, his form of filmmaking was very similar to like kind of kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks but you know a lot, except every a single lot, time it made money i yeah. think one movie he made didn't make money yeah but all but all with like a very educated guess and it was because um he kind of understood what people want to see in a movie or like in a movie of like lower quality that isn't necessary and i don't mean lower quality in the sense that it isn't as good at filmmaking. I mean, lower brow, maybe lower, not, not Oscar bait. That's what I'm driving at. A B movie genre. Yeah. He understood what was appealing about that. And he was good at finding the talent in other people and the hunger in other people who were willing to take that crazy shot where you wanted to go work on, um, a Roger Corman movie, which was typically very difficult, um, and very fast paced shooting. Uh, um, if you've ever read the chapters in Peter Bogdanovich's books where he describes working on his first Roger Corman production, which was uh, Wild Angels, um, it was absurd how fast they made it. They made it in more than two days, but it wasn't much more than two days. I think it was maybe two weeks, which is still very fast yeah. uh, with no money and you kept having to do the impossible. Um, and it was definitely very close to you know actual film boot camp of you know making something work when there was probably no actual way to make it work um that turned out just these incredible incredible artists who went on to kind of take the roger corman b-movie uh style and inject it into the mainstream right like the 70s and the 80s is when uh b-movies move closer to the mainstream especially once blockbusters start coming out like think about jaws and Star Wars. Those are B movie topics that had were mainstream movies. Yeah, you just put put some more money behind them and a little bit bigger ideas, overarching themes, and suddenly, you know, they can take off a lot, a lot more. These kinds of movies, like uh, Little Shop of Horrors, was um, uh, they were kind of marketed 
for distributors to tag along with other movies that were a little bit better as like the second movie in a double feature at drive-in movies and stuff, which were becoming popular. Um, and so at that point you're kind of relaxed. If you just watched a horror movie, then maybe you want a little bit, uh, something a little bit lighter before you go home and stuff like that. So that's where these Roger Corman films fit really well. Um, and that mix of horror and comedy is actually something that Corman was experimenting with in The Little Shop of Horrors, uh, because in one of the interviews that he gives, he talks about how um, he was at a screening for a horror movie, and he noticed that um, often right uh, right after the big jump scare, when everybody would scream, uh, the audience would kind of have this this little murmuring giggle, and he was wondering about that. He was like... And then he, he kind of realized that the, the laughter was sort of a release from the fear. Uh, and those two kind of went hand in hand. So then he was like, well, how about I just start? Uh, I, I work on a film that incorporates those two intentionally. So having the comedy and the horror elements at the same time. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that he was rolling into uh, this film that he wanted to just put out really quickly, just do it with what he has, uh, in a couple days. And, uh, and it worked like, again, the, the comedy is so funny and it's, it's just very well executed too. Like with that super tongue in cheek kind of a thing, like everything with Seymour's mom is the most ridiculous, <laughs> the most ridiculous hypochondriac, uh, stuff that Who you can fit into a movie. Definitely just an alcoholic. Yeah, and literally everything that she eats has to be some kind of medicine or be good for you or whatever uh, while she's like, you know, afraid that she's dying and falling apart. Uh, but she's just out of her senses in every scene that she's in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. OK, Jonathan, do you want to talk about uh, Jack Nicholson in this movie? Jack Nicholson, who has all of what five minutes? Five, five minutes, maybe five lines, but maybe still makes such an impression. Like yeah. I, I, so I, I went to I went to go see this movie for the first time, and I knew Jack Nicholson was in it. I knew it was like one of his first appearances on film, if not his first appearance in a feature film. Um, and I knew that this movie was kind of famous for having him in it, and I was shocked that he was in it for so so little yeah. of a time span. But it's such a good idea for a zany character. Is a character who just loves is a masochist. Um, right. and goes to the dentist to get his jollies, um, which is nuts. Um, and to throw him against Seymour, who is there in, in total fear of pain and losing everything, is one, like a really good filmmaking technique, a really good storytelling technique for mm-hmm. making your character stand out against this world that seems to enjoy pain or suffering. Um, but also, too, just freaking hilarious. Yeah. And it was interesting, like, you know, you you put the the masochistic patient with the sadistic dentist, um, who don't actually get together in this movie, but we'll see that in the uh, in the remake. Uh, but yeah, there's just like so every single character in this movie is so quirky and like pushed to eleven. Like even in the first ten minutes, when we're uh, just watching the normal operations of the shop and. Uh, the guy comes in and starts eating flowers and then there's the little old lady who has this huge family and they keep dying off uh, and so she constantly needs funeral flowers and um, which is something I did not pick up on on the first time around I thought they were oh, different really? little ladies coming by and then the second time oh, around man. I realized it was the same little lady I was like ooh she's got a rough life yeah 
just uh but i mean that's part of the joke like all these characters every their little their thing is just pushed up to 11 and then you've got seymour who's the basically gilligan i got like strong gilligan vibes from seymour um and uh and audrey who's the the ditzy but sweet um co-worker next door if you will um and so just every, everything is just so crazy and packed together. And then you add in this man-eating plant. And I kind of wish I could have an experience of going to see this movie without knowing that this is about a bloodthirsty plant. And just what would that first feed me? Like, what kind of reaction would that have got from the audience? You know? Right, right. It's totally unexpected. Um, and it's bizarre. Like... Like, I think that I don't appreciate how ridiculous of a premise that is because, like, I know about Little Shop of Horrors and it's about this singing and uh, cannibalistic plant or whatever, or just man-eating plant, I guess. Uh, But the whole time I was like, if I didn't know what this movie was about, like, would I still, like, be into it? Like, how do you reconcile that? It's just the most bizarre concept uh, yeah, no, it's totally crazy. And I was thinking about this as we watched it, and I'm, I'm curious to see what your take on this is, Jonathan. But um, I feel like nowadays, horror movies make some kind of effort to explain the logic behind the horror that is happening. Uh-huh. Um, and well, def- we're even going to see that in even, the remake of the, this movie. Yeah, even in the 1986 version, there's some logic to what's going on. Um, but in this one... There, there, there is no logic. I mean, there's, there's maybe a bit of a hint drop, and that's that the plant came from um, a Japanese somewhere in Japan, which seems to imply that it's been radiated. Which seems a did little, they say that in this one? They didn't explicitly say it was radiated, but that seems to be the only. Did explanation they say it was from Japan? Because they I said it was from that. Japan. Yeah. Okay. It, okay. He got it. He got it from a Chinese um, plant seller who has strange exotic plants and he just got one in from Japan and this was it. Um, and I okay. felt like because this was 1960, uh, only 15 years after the, the bombs were dropped, I felt like that was maybe a little insensitive, but also I don't know if that was actually the intent. Um, it might have just been like, hey, this is this is crazy and from far away and maybe in Japan they have man-eating plants. Um which is ignorant on the other hand, but whatever. Um, obviously, nowhere has man-eating plants in America or the world. Um, look, even I just said America when I meant to say the world. We all have problems. Oh, gosh. This is spiraling. Jonathan, save me. Um, but 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 yes, that is to say that there really is no explanation. We get the rules, though. We get the rules once it starts. Oh, yeah. And that is that this plant might only eat so many times. Um, it has to have blood. It has to have fresh blood. Um, it has human to have blood. human blood. Um, although at no point does does Seymour even try to like feed it like a cat and see what happens. Um, right. <laughs> like which I, I was wondering that I was like doesn't even find, try. Like, can't go find like a pigeon and toss it in that thing and see what happens. Um, well, the funny thing is that um, one of the things that I enjoy about this film that gets a little bit changed in the next one is that uh, whenever this plant starts to grow up bodies just fall into seymour's lap like he doesn't try to kill anybody <laughs> they're just like no he's not he just, really people just die around him and he's like well gotta get rid of it somehow yeah no which is important too right like if he becomes a savage like serial killer uh-huh. you lose all sympathy for him the but, only thing is that there are stretches of time that we don't see 
and so and the plant keeps getting bigger so you can maybe infer that he becomes a like a serial killer to some extent but all the stuff that we see it's like happenstances give him a dead body yeah and it's just convenient that he has a plant that wants to eat dead bodies anyway they kind of they kind of give you like a firm accounting of all who died too at the end right. um through a very interesting technique oh that's true yeah, they, we gotta talk you, about like, the end. These are the people who died in the plant. Which are we going to talk yeah. about that? Yeah, let's put down a, a spoiler warning real quick. So this is available online. It's it's old and B movie, so you can find it somewhere. I'll try to put a link to it in the in the blog. So go watch it. It'll take you an hour, less than an hour and a half, um, and then come back. And now we're going to talk about the ending, which I loved because I I kind of wanted Rod Serling to outro this movie. It was so <laughs> Twilight Zone. Uh, yeah, no, it's crazy. It literally, um, reveals Audrey, like, blooms, I think? She doesn't really Audrey die. Jr. Yeah, Audrey t- Jr., I should say. Audrey 2. <laughs> it gets vi- no, a little Audrey confusing. Junior Audrey Jr.? Is this one. Audrey 2 is in the musical. I don't I know why was, that changed either. I, I want thought to it was Audrey 2 in both of them. Oh, that's crazy. Okay. No, it's Audrey um, Jr. Okay, in this one. so Audrey Jr. stops talking blooms like opens up and blooms and sprouts a bunch of flowers um and on each of the large flowers like sunflower sized um blooms on this plant there is a face of somebody who died in the plant which is crazy um yeah but i mean it's not like more crazy than anything else that's happened in this movie so i know i i like it was a little bit of like a ironic twist like a it twilight was. zone thing it was a nice it was a nice button and you're right it feels very um it feels like a very very much like the ending of a um 60s sci-fi of a 60s sci-fi movie which it is <laughs> it is a 60s sci-fi movie right although this kind of helps set the tone for 60s sci-fi movies um if you get what I'm saying, and this probably helped right, influence, right, right. you know, of, of, of all other things, like it probably had a little bit of an influence on Twilight Zone. Um, mm-hmm. Although Twilight Zone has much firmer rules <laughs> than right. this movie does. Um, but yeah, no, what did you think of the ending, Jonathan? Did you think it was a good way to tie it up? Yeah, I thought so. And I, I liked the that there was that little battle between Seymour and Audrey and he kind of you know, charges into the mouth of the beast and then he turns into uh, the little flower and they both die. Um, And again, just like being such a big fan of Twilight Zone and ironic twist endings and stuff like that. I just I know I thought I thought it was charming and uh, I I was pretty satisfied with it. (laughs) It's ridiculous, but it's not is not out of character for anything else that we've seen in the movie. And the, the two detectives that show up and they're just not phased by anything. And that's their whole character. So they're just like, huh, OK. Yeah, right. They're, they're just like, oh, well, I guess that wrapped up. Nice. Yeah. They, and at and no I think, point I are think they the plant eating guy was there, too. And I think I think that that's a funny parallel that gets dropped in the in the remake is that that guy who just like eats the heads off of carnations and random stuff like that. And then the whole the rest of the movie is about a plant that eats people. <laughs> Yeah, right. Um, and, and like only a few characters like act completely shocked by the fact that there's this plant that eats yeah. people. The hypochondriac <laughs> mother, of course, like has a fainting spell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Everyone yeah. else is just like, uh, OK, well, I guess that little episode of the shop is over. OK, what did you think of the mother? Because she was interesting. I didn't think she was the most interesting thing about this movie. And she definitely gets no. cut come the 1986 version. 
Oh yeah. Well, a lot of those uh, those lesser uh, quirky characters do get cut, um, and I think that she just kind of she pads the running time a little bit. She adds a little bit of um, you know just quirk and flair to the thing, uh, and she provides some interesting. Um, comedy, like especially when uh, Seymour and Audrey are trying to have a date, and um, they, she kind of just goes to explain the weirdness and sadness of Seymour's life uh, to some extent, because he is kind of just this this sad little man who's trying to he's trying to do something good, uh, but pretty much everything is stacked against him, literally everything. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's just so <laughs> he is he is bum- he, he is literally bubbling. And it's kind of sad to watch. He, he garners sympathy so instantly on screen by being so incompetent. Um, yeah. And just a, like his stature and everything just like exudes sympathy. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. oh, you poor little man. Anyway, I thought he did great in his role. Uh, I thought I think. No, the cast the, is excellent. Yeah, the cast all like they get it again. It's all tongue in cheek. So it's not like you feel like they're failing because their characters are so quirky and hilarious it's like we all know that we're making fun of these types of movies and and uh all of this stuff none of it uh, it's all done with a wink and a nod towards the audience yeah no nobody's taking this too seriously like why aren't you caught up in the drama of this man-eating plant Uh, right they they know the appeal of it is mostly comedic and like schlocky horror so they're leaning into it and it works it works and this is like kind of at the start of this formula working um, and really becoming a thing in the 60s and then becoming a patented genre moving forward um, until yeah. horror changes abruptly in the early 2000s with like Saw. Right. <laughs> Which yeah, is something big, totally different. Big change. Um, but that's that's to discuss another day and hopefully Saw will never be on this podcast if I have my way. But <laughs> maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Um, potentially. Potentially. We did do audition. <laughs> We did do audition. That was something I would uh, I, I would not like to think about that movie again. It was so <laughs> upsetting. Um, it was very good, but it was so upsetting. Yeah. All right. Well, to take our minds off of that, Jason, why don't you set us up for Little Shop of Horrors, 1986. The Little Shop of Horrors from 1986. The 1986 version of Little Shop of Horrors is pretty much the same as the last, but this time... A musical. It's a musical. It's a musical. Only one of us was in the Von Trapp family in high school. Um, I know, and, and it wasn't that me. Was not my shining moment. Um, but Alex, did you pick up on uh, who wrote the music for this musical? Do you mean Alan Menken? I do mean Alan Menken. Do you recall Alan Menken's his claim to fame, or what he's most well known for? Well, I'll tell you in my eyes what he'll always be most famous for is Gallivant, but um, <laughs> it's specifically right. the scene Fair in enough. which there is a flashback to young Richard and there is a young Alan Menken offering to write a song in that scene. Um, That's that, amazing. That was peak Alan Menken for me. But uh, what <laughs> is he most famous for, Jonathan, to everybody on this planet who isn't me? Yeah, so everyone that isn't Alex will know him from uh, the Disney Renaissance, which we just talked about with uh, our good friend Aaron Johnson a couple episodes ago. Um, Alan Menken and uh, Howard Ashman 
they are the two who wrote a lot of the music for those classic Disney movies like Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid. And they wrote the music for this, too, which is hilarious. And I was actually thinking that because there, there are at least two I Want songs. And we talked about kind of the Disney formula and stuff like that. And so even Little Shop of Horrors, to some extent, follows the Disney formula uh, in its music and its storytelling, which I think is pretty hilarious because it's very much not a Disney film. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very, very different from a Disney film. It does start off with two I Want songs, Audrey wanting um, to have a very nice, simple uh, suburban life away from Skid Row, um, and Seymour wanting, you know, Audrey. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, and wanting to also get out. Also like, wanting I think to the first Skid big Row. song is kind of like the, the general theme song, which is that everyone on Skid Row wants to get off of Skid Row. Yeah, they, you know um, what? They did a very good job in this one of like setting the world a bit better, yeah. partially because they had the budget to establish that world. Um, it's but still also a pretty like, small like set, and you can tell that it's a, it's, it's a very set, much so a set. It's not like they have a, a big, nice location and stuff yeah. like that. No, it's, but it's a, it's there's a, a lot of texture to it. It's yeah. it's a look, and it's not it's not like a, a obviously a set in like a bad way. It's obviously a set in the sense that this is kind of performative and staged, right. and it feels much more and like musical. a musical in that regard. Um, but I love that they actually made Skid Row, like, the location a motivating factor to all of these characters. Like, all of these characters, mm-hmm. every almost everybody that we meet is not in a good place. <laughs> uh, right. Almost everybody we meet is not doing well. Um, and they change a lot of stuff to make that happen, including, like, you know, the plant shop not having very many plants in it. Um, yeah, because in the original, they weren't, like... They weren't really struggling as a business. They had a lot of customers and stuff like that. But uh, in this one, it's like they're going to go out of business unless something happens. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's really it's really dire and it's really grim. And there's like a few plants in the window, but we only see those plants in angles. We only angle towards the window yeah. once uh, Audrey 2, not Audrey Jr., Audrey 2 is actually out in the uh, in the shop. Um, and in this one, we get a very different backstory to Audrey 2, which makes this even more sci-fi. Um, oh, yeah. And what's that, Jonathan? What's that backstory? Well, I was walking down the street to the... I don't know how the song goes, but he, he does the song like twice. Um, but yeah, so he, he goes to the Chinese... Uh, uh, plant seller guy and then there's a total eclipse of the sun it's a big song everyone who knows the music better than i will will be singing it in their head um and then lightning strikes and suddenly this plant appears um and uh yeah so he's like oh that's interesting so then he picks it up and takes it and tries to uh raise it um and this one is also interesting because uh the plant has a motive whereas in the original it was just kind of hungry but in this one there we get to this point where we realize oh audrey too like wants to dominate the world (laughs) and that uh that scale up just kind of uh comes out of nowhere yeah no it's totally crazy and this audrey too has much more well i should just say has a personality um audrey jr in 1960 just said feed me feed me feed me seymour um and this one actually has like thoughts and opinions and like a sneaky plan and hidden motives and yeah he's got funk (laughs) 
which was unexpected. <laughs> Very unexpected. <laughs> deeply, deeply unexpected. Um, what did you think of the the route to take um, Audrey to to a funkadelic place? Um, I mean, it's it's fun, and I think that the 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 interesting thing is that you know this plant called Audrey too. Um, and I've heard before that typically on stage and stuff is played by a very deep voiced man and stuff like that, um, which is hilarious, especially because like the most prominent feature of the plant is its lips, especially in this one. Um, and we do have to talk about the animatronics and the puppetry because they're amazing. Uh, and I haven't looked up all the behind the scenes stuff on this yet, but uh, I don't know how they did it. They did a really good job on all the uh, practical effects. Um, but yeah, it's, there, there's a lot more of this, um, I don't know how to describe it, like an um, omniscience of the medium in this weird sense where we have like this chorus that takes us into the movie, uh, these three girls who sing the, the intro song, but then they, they appear in the movie as characters, but also they kind of glide in and out of the scenes as... Um, yeah, they're as this chorus, chorus of singers. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I really like the way that they they literally kind of you know walk through walls and they switch between being uh, diegetic and non diegetic uh, seamlessly, and it's really it's really interestingly done. And um, to an extent, Audrey too also has a little bit of that because there's like the scene where uh, Mushnik is threatening Seymour and Audrey is listening at the door and Audrey um, kind of knows all this stuff about Seymour. So uh, Audrey becomes this uh, much bigger kind of mythological type of creature that's really interesting, but mixing that kind of huge power and this really quirky and sarcastic uh, personality at the same time I don't know. It just mixes to give this this really uh, fascinating and layered type of a, a character that is so unique because it's a flipping plant. Right, right. Um, it makes for a. I mean, I like that the the Audrey two in this one has like a sense of agency as the villain. You yeah. know, right? Like in in the in the earlier one, it was almost Seymour almost became the villain because he was he was the one making the decision to cave to Audrey Jr. In this one, yeah. Audrey too is putting the screws to yeah. So I would say that in Seymour. the original, the original is like a monster movie. It's like uh, Alien or something where Alien is just uh, it's a monster, it's an animal trying to eat and that just happens to be very very dangerous for humans little shop of horrors almost turns into uh audrey 2 turns into like a bond villain who has this huge plan and these means of executing this plan um which makes i don't even know whether to call audrey 2 a him or a her honestly i guess him um uh makes it uh, much more ominous uh in a weird way I would strongly argue that Audrey 2 probably should be referred to as a they because it's a plant. Um, yeah, I would just say it. Yeah, it, it's it's a perfect, perfect use of this <laughs> term. It's perfect. That's a good pronoun for this. There we um, go. 
But yes, uh, it Audrey Two is very, very, very diabolical. What did you think? Uh, obviously, we'll get to. We have to talk about some of the side characters because all of the side characters change in quite a big way. Um, oh yeah, and they're all fascinating. <laughs> I love all the side mm-hmm. characters in this movie so much. But let's start with one of the most interesting changes um, for me, and one that I expected in the the original when I first saw it, but never it never happened. And that was uh, Mushnik putting the screws to Seymour um, in like threatening him. Uh, to threatening to turn him in if he didn't get out of town and t- hand over the um, essentially profit of Audrey two to him. Well, the, the, I mean, the most interesting thing. So, okay, we're just going to get into a lot of spoilers for this movie. So again, go watch this movie because there are a lot of changes that we got to talk about. So if you don't want to know about what those are yet, go watch the movie and then come back. So spoilers happening now because the most interesting part about that change, which is so subtle but what happens is in this film, Mushnik sees Seymour uh, with the body of the dentist, but he doesn't see him feed the plant. So he doesn't realize that the plant eats people. Um, whereas in the original, he, he, he did get that. So he, um, Mushnik in the original film was like, okay, I kind of see that Seymour... Uh, had no, or I, I don't know what he, what he completely thought, but he realized that the plant needed to keep getting bigger for his shop to survive. And as long as Seymour could provide the, the humans, he didn't want that to happen, but he also didn't want him to be the one to go out and kill people and feed the plant. I feel like in this one though, uh, just the fact that he thinks that Seymour killed the dentist, uh, makes it more of a blackmail situation and a little bit less nuanced. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It kind of, the second he did that, I felt like it was the plot giving an out to him dying. Um, and also, yeah, like, right. definitely, it was definitely like a vindication a of Seymour um, to, like, make it okay for Seymour to, um, uh, to, to, for Seymour to continue on this, this track. Also, Seymour seems way more like, we, we see his emotional arc a lot more clearly in this version. Like we well, yeah, see him that's, that's what music adds. Yeah. Right. But also I think the montage where, um, and, and I don't know, I don't know what to call it because I've seen a few of quite a few of these over quite a few movies where somebody's experiencing, uh, worldly success, but emotional degradation at the same time. Um, yeah. Or like moral degradation at the same time. That was one of the best ones I've ever seen <laughs> in this movie. Um, yeah, it just hit so close to home. And you know, Rick Moranis's face is just so good at, I guess, looking helpless <laughs> and yeah. sad and like overwhelmed. Um, he fills the shoes of Jonathan Hayes really, really well. Oh, oh. Uh, so much. I, w- I mean, I would almost say that uh, I would actually argue that Rick Moranis is the better Seymour. Um, yeah, and no, that's I not, totally that's not, see that. That's not because Jonathan Hayes did a bad job. It's probably because by the time Rick Moranis got to the role, the role had more meat on its bones. Um, yeah. It, you know, it, it's... I it will is, say, though, Rick Moranis was the weakest singer of the bunch by far. Yeah, but it kind of works. 
like yeah i mean he is kind of this sad sack the funny thing is that ellen green is such a good singer that she can't keep her annoying voice while she's singing because she tried to she tried to sing with her annoying voice and then just her really excellent broadway voice kept coming through that was hilarious it almost became like a character arc moment where i was like oh this is the real like audrey this is audrey blooming this is audrey blooming under the care of the horticulturalist (laughs) seymour um, but then she would go right back into her voice when she was done singing. <laughs> which her voice was hilarious. It was. It That's was it. So okay, what funny. did you think about the about the change for Audrey? Because they they blew up her character they to did. eleven in a very different well, way. Well now well in the original Audrey was a person, but she didn't feel like she was very complicated. Right. Like we just knew we just knew that Seymour was clueless that Audrey was actually interested in him. And then once he, you know, gained a little self-confidence, he realized that. And then Audrey was with him. And that was it. Yeah, that was pretty much all we knew about Audrey. Uh, But in this one, Audrey has like a complex set of wants and she has a complex like self-image of herself that she's battling alongside Seymour. Um, which mm-hmm. is a very nice theme in the movie, by the way. I really like that where, you know, it's I think it's true that most people tend to think of themselves much worse than they actually are. Um, unless you're a sociopath, which there's a few of those out there. Um, but it was nice to see that theme explored, especially in Audrey. She had a very nice setup where she had to make the same realization that Seymour did, that they both did deserve to be happy and they didn't have to go in about like, you know, doing crazy yeah. things like, you know, be, being with like this abusive masochist or, you know. Yeah, they were both in abusive both relationships. In abusive that's relationships. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Oh, my gosh. That's true. That's great. That's a good parallel. I like yeah. that. Yeah, no, I, I really liked that the, and the way that they were able to. So, the, yeah, the interesting thing is that they did make Audrey much more complex and layered. But the the surface level of her character was almost like a joke on uh, one dimensional female characters from the 50s and 60s. And so there was like this weird disconnect with her her voice and presentation that felt uh, very caricaturish, and then her actual character development, which was, you know, very deep and mature. Um, but the way that they incorporated her character and made put her in a relationship with the dentist character, because in the in the original, the dentist didn't really like he wasn't that necessary. Yeah, he to, didn't. He was fit. fun, but yeah, he was just kind of there. He was. And he now was a person they integrated. Who was easy, he was a person who was easy to kill for the plant. Yeah. Um, and yeah. in this case, he ends up being the same thing, but also by tying him into Audrey's backstory, you know, this is another step of the plant enticing Seymour to do something bad to get something good for Seymour and the plant. Yeah. Um, and it creates that parallel again, like I said, between mm-hmm. those two characters and their relationships. It also but gives us this to talk amazing about, Steve Martin character. <laughs> yes, the actors, Steve Martin, and it also provides a uh, a silly Bill, Bill Murray vehicle, which, Alex, have we done a silly Bill Murray on the podcast? Because we've done like 10 sad Bill Murrays on the podcast. Well, we did Scrooge. Scrooge. Okay, yeah, you're right. Um, um, I mean, one yeah, day, one day is, we'll get to like Caddyshack or like What's About Bob. Yeah, um, and What About Bob was directed by Frank Oz, so I, oh, is it really? I, yeah, yeah. Oh, so I gosh. think that that's fun because they're they're pretty similar characters in these two movies. So yeah, Fr- uh, Bill Murray plays the masochist uh, patient, and um, 
Steve Martin plays the sadistic dentist. And oh my gosh, Steve Martin is like, I don't know, at 12 or 13. And um, Bill, so they actually get to have that interaction that they don't have in the original because the dentist dies before the the masochist can get in there. But in this one, they actually do. And uh, it makes... Steve Martin's character unsatisfied that Bill Murray is enjoying it so much. So he literally kicks him out of the office, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, everything from Steve Martin's song. Uh, oh, my introducing, gosh. Introducing like him as like this rebel masochist. Well, not masochist. He enjoys sadist. inflicting pain. Sadist. He enjoys inflicting pain on others. And Bill Murray is a masochist. Oh, oh gosh. Man. The chair scene was both completely hilarious and also made me deeply uncomfortable at the same time. Um, how unnecessary and how great was the shot from inside of Bill Murray's mouth where they <laughs> literally crazy. built a mouth set like that how much work went into that shot just to have Steve Martin like using a drill on this gigantic like 12 foot mouth. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's absurd. Um, I would say That's the shot Frank that Oz made me going to town. That yeah, that was like let's use another puppet, guys. Um, I, the, the the shot that made me the most uncomfortable though was when Bill Murray like put his hand on Steve Martin's shoulder as he was <laughs> working in his mouth, which was hilarious. Yeah, but also like uh, so weird. <laughs> yeah, it's cringy. Um, okay. So, but speaking of Steve Martin, um, I think it's interesting and I, I, I alluded to this a second ago, but, um, in this, in this movie, Audrey two gets to this point of blackmailing Seymour into murder, which he almost commits, uh, straight up murder on Steve Martin's character. Uh, and then <laughs> Steve Martin ends up, uh, offing himself with laughing gas. Um, but it's just a, it's a tone shift from uh, Gilligan bumbling around and accidentally ending up with a bunch of uh, dead bodies to he's like dealing with he's like wrestling with this in himself of trying to kill people in order to further his career and his life goals. And um, so that's a really interesting tone shift that is throughout this movie. True. That's true. He is definitely, he is, he's definitely blackmailing him into murder, which at, at on one's end, like keeps him from, uh, keeps Seymour from being, you know, the villain of the piece. But also I have to say, I don't think Seymour kills anybody. No, he doesn't end up killing anybody, <laughs> he but he has this internal people, struggle, but he never yeah, he has it. an internal struggle that the old C the the original Seymour doesn't really have to have this <laughs> this kind of uh, battle within himself of like should I go out and literally shoot this dentist? Um, but also the fact of seeing the dentist uh, beat up Audrey really helps sympathize <laughs> sympathize us with Seymour because at that point we're like all right he's got it coming to him however it happens. Yeah right no it would be. Um God, I love this movie so much. <laughs> it's so crazy. And I had so much fun throughout it's the ridiculous. whole thing. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about the uh, special effects in this movie? Because the this, lip, are, the, uh, I don't know if you'd call them special effects. I don't know if the practical any of this was, effects. uh, this was all practical, wasn't it? 
Except for the very, very end. Oh, right. Where Audrey. Yeah. Yes. We'll yeah, talk yes. About that. No, that's fair. That's fair. That's <laughs> definitely um, not. I meant mostly Audrey because the lip articulation on Audrey 2 was, but it was amazing. absurd. It was so thorough. I mean, the plant makes the the sounds around each syllable sound that it makes. It is yeah. impressive. Um, and not only that, but like its heads moving at the same time, its petals moving at the same time. And there's its like five vines different ones moving at its, as it grows. At the same time. Yeah, it's crazy. The coordination, once like it has like 10 mini heads that are all singing at the same time. Oh, yeah. It's intense. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It is. I mean, I feel like Frank Oz might have just made this movie just to play with puppets, but. Just to show off. Yeah, in like, a little bit more of an adult setting. He's so good at it, though. It's okay. Yeah. It's so impressive. And you know what? I have to say, it's impressive that they were able to do this all practically. Uh, one, for the sake of the effects and the sake of how it looks on screen. But two, I have to think it, it you know, kind of turns back around and benefits these actors' performances, right? Oh, um, yeah. Because a large part of the acting trade in the past 10 to 15 years has quickly become acting to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Not only or motion not, capture suits or whatever. Yeah, right. Like it, it's become a lot of you can't play. You, you don't have anything to play off emotionally. You half the time you don't have a scene partner if you're playing against like you know a CGI dragon or something, um, yeah. and you're doing like all of the work, and then you know 300 VFX people are doing the back end work to make it look right. Um, and hopefully, you know, whatever they envision, whatever the director envision, lines up with whatever emotion you put on screen. Um, so having that happen all in live at one space continuously has to benefit the actor quite a bit to be able to play off of it. And I feel like that shows, I feel like the relation, the on-screen relationship and the on-screen like acting camaraderie between the puppeteer team on Audrey two and Rick Moranis as Seymour was one of the highlights of the whole film in a film of like a billion yeah. highlights too. Oh, okay. So I'm just, I'm looking up a little bit about the, uh, animatronics on here. And apparently one thing that they did, uh, to make the mouth movements seem more realistic is that they operated it slowly and then they played back the footage of the mouth at a faster speed. Um, because I don't know, I guess they, they accidentally did that at some point and they realized that uh, it was it, it looked a little more realistic so they did a little bit of like time warping and stuff like that um, and then they would just kind of uh, lip sync to it afterwards so hey fair. I don't know. it worked but yeah it's all puppets like it's uh, it's incredible and it's so detailed too there were it, I mean a lot of the movement was so convincing that there were one or two times that I thought it was like high quality CGI. I was like, they used a computer on this. Right. There's no way they didn't use a 86. computer on this. But this they, is like way before Jurassic Park or any of that. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, this is this is this is wickedly impressive. I am I am shocked by how <laughs> impressive this this is actually. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure doing this kind of special or, or uh, practical effects is really, really expensive. But at the same time, it's so worth it. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about the the ending of the movie because there's a pretty big departure um, as far as the end of the story from the original. Um, 
So again, if you want to avoid spoilers, just go ahead and skip ahead to the overall section. Um, but uh, this is something that we talked about on the bonus podcast uh, recently about changed endings based on test screenings. Um, and this is a film that changed after they were um, kind of showing it to some people. And I think I'm just doing like a brief Wikipedia scroll here. Um, but apparently they were going to end it with uh, this point where both Seymour and Audrey end up dying and Audrey um, the plant succeeds to taking over New York City uh, so I guess that's what happens in the musical is somehow the the plant kind of wins well that's dark um, but the, yeah they ended up changing it I mean they give like a little hint like a little nod or whatever at the end um, but yeah in this one as opposed to having uh, the little seed pods show the faces of everyone who uh, died in Audrey um they just have like this. They basically turned it from a from a Rod Serling ending into a Michael Bay ending. That's what they I felt did. like because it's literally a shootout, and then uh, Seymour electrocutes Audrey until it blows up in like a a Death Star kind of explosion, um, and then him and him and Audrey uh, the first kind of live happily ever after. Um, so yeah, I thought that that. What did you think about the ending? Because it's so different. It is. It is so different. I kind of. Well, I felt like in this one, I was rooting for Seymour and Audrey a lot more. Probably more for Audrey because she's such a you know she's such a sympathetic character that you right. you just root for her so hard in this one um, compared to the last one where she was just kind of there um, that you wanted them to get their dream. You, you really wanted them to get their dreams. So I was kind of happy that you got that. Um, Cause otherwise, you know, like if you, if you build up all the, the sympathy for characters and then take away their, um, take away their shot at that dream that works in certain circumstances. Like if you're making very pointed, like social commentaries or social critiques, typically in a much more serious dramatic setting than a happy go lucky musical. Um, or an upbeat musical, not happy go lucky musical. Right. Um, but in this case, in this kind of, you know, upbeat musical setting, giving them their dream feels like the much more cathartic ending um, than otherwise. And yeah. you can tell that there's still like, there still is a hint of the dark ending in the end when you see another Audrey two in, in their flower bed, in their flower yeah. bed, which I don't know how it got there. Probably came from outer space, but um, <laughs> Or I, I like to think that there was like a seed on Seymour's uh, shoe or something that fell out. Yeah, no, that's totally possible. <laughs> I mean, when that thing exploded, it might have been stuffed to to the gills with uh, yeah, or it goes yeah, seeds. like dandelion style. Yeah, 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 just ready to multiply and take over the world. I mean, that was its plan. So, um, right. so yeah, no, I mean, I felt like they got to work in a little bit of the darkness in there, um, and they gave us, I think, what was the right ending for the musical they made leading up to that point. Yeah. So let's talk about kind of just some some overall stuff. I see you put in here. Um, there's there's a little bit of like Greek tragedy tones in here, which I didn't think about, but I can see it now that you say that. Yeah, no, for sure. There definitely is. Um, hero gets a chance, especially um, the original, especially the original, for sure. Um, and then, you know, his fault and, you know, kind of I don't know what you would describe his fault as like it's not. Being a pushover? 
Yeah, maybe. And that kind of goes into uh, the whole blackmail situation in the in the remake. Like he he's he doesn't have a backbone. Uh, his mom kind of pushing him around and oh, the uh, mom pushing you know, him around thing made it feel very Greek. Yeah. <laughs> what's with the what's with the Greeks and the Hitchcocks and the Freuds of the worlds and mothers and moms, moms and blondes. You know, we we literally did like I a whole episode already, on I that. I think we already made that. We were, we already made that that show. We did that. Oh man, go check out our Hitchcock series. You find out what we're talking about. That was almost um, two years ago. Yeah, it was. But yeah, there's there's definitely those tragedy vibes. But all of the the comedy, like I feel like you could take it and and do like a Rod Serling thing and make it really dramatic and put some kind of social commentary under it. Um, but the the dark comedy and the um, the the genre farces and all that stuff just make the original so much fun. And then just taking it and putting it in the in an even more over the top setting with some really fabulous music uh, in the musical version just makes like all versions of this story so much fun and still like have those little uh, elements of creepiness of like the murder and all that kind of stuff. But um, in like a arsenic and old lace way where murder is not really like a moral thing in these movies. It's more of just like a fun element that goes into uh, the plot here because we're not dealing with like super psychological uh, issues. <laughs> yeah, it's like something that just happens. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely is it is an act of agency, right? It's something that characters end up consciously doing, except for Seymour, who uh-huh. uh, does everything accidentally, literally does everything accidentally. I don't think he, anything <laughs> he intentionally does fails. Everything he does right. that he succeeds at or happens is accidental, including killing people in both versions. Um, Except for killing Audrey in both versions. Maybe the only intentional act that he does. It's true. It's true. Although, did he kill Audrey in the first one, or did he just end her, end her life cycle? Complete, uh, complete I mean, her he, feeding. He launched himself into it with a knife, so I like to assume... Because she, she wilted uh, when, he, when we see his face, and then it wilts off. So I think... I think that was a kind of a draw on that one. That's fair. I would call that a draw. <laughs> that man um, nearly beat that plant. <laughs> yeah, I think in that respect, the man probably loses because if he can't beat a plant, then, uh, you know, and, what does and that you, say about us? Yeah, right. Yeah, and you know what? This is kind of like a nice tale about um, stories finding new life. Um, Absolutely. Even though you think they're dead. <laughs> Um, and, and I mean, just at the top of the podcast, we tracked this story's, um, you know, germination, journey. if you will, yeah, germination. <laughs> oh, perfect. Uh, and life cycle through, um, from being like, you know, a pulpy story on paper to being, um, a really schlocky under budget, uh, B movie to being an off, off Broadway hit to being an off Broadway hit to being, um, I think an off-off Broadway hit again, like it moved back and forth one time. No, it actually went to Broadway. Oh, okay. After there you that. go. Yeah. There you go. Then it went to Broadway. Then it became a mo- massive movie musical that lots of people had seen and brought in two of the biggest comedy stars of the generation who had already made it big on SNL, Bill Murray and yeah. uh, Steve Martin. And then, uh, you know, even to the point now where even if you haven't seen these movies, I would argue that most people would understand that... Feed me, Seymour. Comes from oh, yeah. somewhere, right? Oh yeah. Like 
that that comes from something even if you haven't seen it um and the other so, interesting thing is that now that it's become so popular in the Frank Oz version, that has got people to go back and rewatch the original version. So it kind of becomes this cycle where, um, you know, people trace it backwards and find this kind of gem of a little B movie that could have easily just fizzled out and gotten lost to history forever. Like Bucket of Blood. Yeah, like probably 90% of Roger Corman's films, which is why he probably won't be on the podcast again for a very, very long time, if ever. I mean, uh, he's got some good ones that he did later on. Um, but but yeah, he's he's going to weave his way in and out of the stories we tell on the podcast for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, explicitly or not. But, I mean, just the fact that somebody saw this old movie probably... Uh, you know, I guess it was only a couple decades since whenever the musical was made. But so yeah, maybe somebody years. saw it as a rerun. Maybe somebody had seen it when they were a kid and it just stuck with them. And then they were like, let's turn this into a stage musical. And they just kind of like took it and did it really well. Um, and, uh, you know, and then it just becomes this cycle where now this is just a part of our culture. Uh and it didn't have to be, but now it is. And I'm not mad about it. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, no, it's a nice thing to have in our culture. I feel like this is like both. I feel like both instances of this actually um, make for a very good um, drive in movie. You know what oh, I yeah. mean? Like like that kind of like summer night B movie, not too serious, hanging out with your friends type movie. Um, and I highly recommend them. Uh, a lot of these movies that we cover that are older, I feel like a lot of people aren't interested in watching, but are so fun to watch, especially in groups. Oh, yeah. Like, make it a social activity. <laughs> yeah. Go go get your friends and make, make a movie night. Do it, like, once a week, once every two weeks. And go just go just watch a movie. Go go yeah. enjoy it. And, and these are, you know, perfect options. And, you know, also I think the if original... you and all of your friends want to, like, you know, listen to the podcast and hear good movie recommendations, <laughs> or, you know, like maybe, you know, hop on the Patreon and contribute to polls and stuff, that would be cool, too. Yeah, I'd take yeah. that. I'd take it's that. It's a different kind of cycle. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, this would definitely be probably one that I put in my, like, light Halloween movie watching list, like, with Arsenic and Old Lace and stuff like that, just because... Right. Um, it's fun, you know, you don't have to worry about, like, actually scaring anybody, uh, but it still, like, kind of fits the mood and all that kind of stuff, so definitely recommend. Um, and it's interesting because, like, I feel like there's almost this telephone effect of the story through these different mediums, and I don't know the full story of the musical, but I know that there are at least a little bit of story changes to the movie version of the musical, so it's interesting how... Um, even when we're talking about stories, uh, and I haven't yet, but I'm, I'm probably going to uh, read the H.G. Wells story soon and just kind of like trace this story through the medium of short stories to uh, screenplay to stage musical to film musical. And just, you know, you see where those little warps happen and where those little changes happen. And yet you still keep kind of the heart and the characters and uh, the overall bits of the story. I mean, like it's a story about a plant that eats people whole. Um, and so it's just really fun. But it's also it's just fun to kind of see the ways that stories can um, morph and change as they get uh, picked up by new artists and new creative people and adapted into 
different mediums. Yeah, exactly. No, it's very interesting to trace the life cycle of these this sort of story. One that, you know, you think would die but doesn't. Um, and this right. feels very different than the current cycle of stories not dying that that we're we're going through right like this is this is like this thing changes a little bit every time and it becomes reincarnated with like a different artist at the helm who's doing a different take on it and doing something interesting and different with it rather than like a forced cycle of uh money money yeah money grubbing (laughs) cash grabbing stuff that's like hey i don't feel like shove this out there like that nobody if take if you watch the 1986 version um it's actually a little shocking that anybody greenlit that <laughs> yeah it's like right? i don't like, think it frank doesn't oz look is like, like an auto money maker this this musical is going to make us so much money this little broadway musical that has worked its way up the broadway chain uh you know i feel like if little shop of horrors were remade again now it would become a cash grabby thing. But whenever somebody turned it into a musical from a Roger Corman film, that was not somebody being like, we're going to make so much money off of this Roger Corman film that will now be a musical. That's someone being like, this was a lot of fun. Let's make it even more fun by putting music to it. Um, Right. That's a long shot. Yeah. Yeah. So if you listen to, I mean, we, we just did an entire series of film series covering remakes and reboots and, uh, continuations and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like you're saying, this is different because it's not James Bond. It's not something that uh, is guaranteed to make a profit every single time that it that it comes around. At this point, now it's gotten enough attention, I think probably primarily through Frank Oz's adaptation, um, that now if you do it again, now someone's trying to squeeze a little bit more money out of it. But I don't know what what you change from Frank Oz's version. I think it's pretty, pretty definitive as far as a a film version. Oh, somebody will make another version one day. Yeah. It's a coming, you know what? I can never say, you know what? I'm always waiting for it. You know what? The day that I know I'll be old, Jonathan. Oh no. When they remake, when they, when they, when somebody announces that they're remaking Harry Potter, that's when I know that I will Uh, be old. Cause it's going to happen. Don't tell me it won't happen. It's going to happen. Um, it's just a matter of when, and yeah. I am, I am, I am dreading it. So we'll go to it. Oh yeah, it'll I mean, all be motion will capture too, Alex. Some some day, and they'll some call kid, it live action. Some kid is going to come up to me, like some little intern we hired it, on some project <laughs> I'm on, is going to come up to me and be like, "Hey, Mr. Garinger, have you ever heard of this uh, Harry Potter thing that's coming out? It's pretty good. I think you might like it." You know what Harry Potter is? I'm going to, like, I don't know. I don't want to get fired, so I don't want to say I'm going to hit the kid, but I am going to, like, give a, my best old man sigh and just turn, walk away, and then, like, go complain about how much my back hurts. You know how they're going to make it? They're going to have actors oh. do motion capture, and they're going to replace the actors with Daniel Radcliffe and uh, all the original actors. Oh, so it'll look gosh. exactly the same. But it will just have a new date on it, which means that all the kids will go see it. Oh, gosh. I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting to see whether this new habit of like uh, euthanizing by euthanizing. I, I mean, with a Y by making making older actors look younger on screen. I'm waiting oh, to yeah. see whether or not this is going to stick because they've done it like two or three times now with Samuel L. Jackson. And I'm ready for it to be over. <laughs> yeah, it is disconcerting every time I've seen it. Yeah, I mean, I, f- 
I understand that there may be occasions where it's useful for like a scene or a flashback or whatever, but doing things like, uh, did you see the Gemini trailer? And we're like way off topic uh, now. Yeah, the Gemini trailer makes me Gemini sad. Man trailer. That's gonna be like it, making a whole movie around uh, a de-aged effect. Uh, that's gonna be a little cringy. Why, Angley? Yeah. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to be talking about next time, which is um, a director who has appeared a couple of times on the podcast already. Um, we've already covered a couple of his really big films. Um, that was The African Queen and Maltese Falcon. But we're going to be doing a deep dive on the man, the myth, the legend, John Huston, and which of his films throughout his long and illustrious career will we be covering, Alex? Uh, well, first up, we're going to be talking about The Treasure of the Sierra Madre from 1948, for which both John Huston and his father, who plays the crazy old prospector in the movie, won Oscars, um, which is only they're only one of only two families that have ever done that in history. I think we've already talked about that on the pod. I'm sure we'll talk about it again. Um, then The Asphalt Jungle from 1950, which I believe has Marilyn Monroe in it, and that should be a very interesting noir film to look take a look at. And then one of my favorite... Um, oh, I don't even know what to call the genre. It's like British imperial adventure movies. Um, <laughs> but The Man Who Would Be King from 1975 with Michael Caine... Michael Caine? And, Michael um, Caine. Michael Caine. Um... And oh, what's what's his name? He played. He was the first James Bond. Why can't I remember his name? Jonathan? Sean Connery. Sean Connery. There you go. <laughs> um, who gave an amazing performance and an amazing, um, like location-driven story um, that I think is probably based off of a, like a Rudyard Kipling novel. It, if, if that not, sounds then it very feels, plausible. It feels like it is, even if it's not. And we'll talk about that and all the ramifications of being based off of, of a Rudyard Kipling story um, when we get to that show. But it's going to be amazing. I'm excited. Um, but Alex, are you ready to be frustrated with me? Oh, I'm probably frustrated. What? what why, why, why am I frustrated? <laughs> I haven't seen any of these movies. Oh, that's okay. You're going to love them. I know. I'm so excited because I've heard so many good things. So this is going to be a great week. Um, Any, anytime we can get it so that one of us is seeing a movie for the first time, that's that's typically We try to do good. that a lot. We yeah. try to do it a lot, but it just doesn't happen very much. Probably mostly my fault, but um, <laughs> that's okay. Um, it's yeah, it's so still fun I'm regardless. Stoked. Um, All right, so before we sign off, let's talk about donations. Again, we have a Patreon account and a coffee account if you would like to support us. Uh, Of course, we always appreciate it. Um, uh, If you subscribe to the $5 tier on Patreon, you can listen to our bonus podcast. The last episode that we did, we talked about test screenings, and that kind of conversation veered off to talk about feedback and creative uh, collaboration and stuff like that. Pretty interesting stuff. And the latest Patreon commentary track is uh, one that I did over Bonnie and Clyde, which you can watch on Netflix. So if you want to turn it on on Netflix and turn the commentary on on your podcast app and listen to some history about Bonnie and Clyde and whatever observations I could possibly make about the filmmaking, you can do that for $10 a month on Patreon. 
All right, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. I am the Blue Jay. He is the Blue Jay. And you can find me on Twitter.com. Yes, he yes, is. at the Blue Jay. He is the Blue Jay. I forgot at the Blue Jay 1994. Ha <laughs> ha. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Little episode, little episode of Finlings, little episode, little episode of Finlings. I'm driving Jonathan crazy now. Oh man, we don't do <laughs> Skype anymore, so you can't see my face. Uh, I can't. No, I, I, you, you, <laughs> you don't know how many times we've done this, man. I can see your face right now. I know yeah. exactly what it looks like, but that's okay.